1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. to Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. Coming to you from the new Forgotten TV studio of solitude, I'm Chris Cooling. If you're listening to this on a web browser, you can subscribe to Forgotten TV on your mobile device and not miss a single show. Simply use Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, the new Google Podcasts, or search for Forgotten TV on any podcast app. The TV Detective. It's a genre as old as television itself. As early as 1949, detective shows such as Man Against Crime, The Cases of Eddie Drake, and Martin Kane, Private Eye, were brought to you by your favorite tobacco brands. The makers of those four distinctively different type tobaccos... Briar, Dill's Best, Model, and Tweed present Martin Kane, Private Eye, starring William Gargan. These first TV detectives were hard-boiled and came right out of the pages of pulp magazines, smoking cigarettes and wearing trench coats. Many of them had a backstory of a broken marriage alcoholism, or simply worked so much it got in the way of family and relationships. It's a TV trope called The Defective Detective, and examples can be found down to the present day with representations on the various Law & Order series. In some modern incarnations of this, the character is portrayed as a socially awkward eccentric, but a genius, brilliant to the point of being a savant, but lacking some ability to relate to or interact with regular people in normal situations. Having the ability to analyze and apply deductive reasoning, this character is adept at investigating crimes. In the past couple decades in particular, it has become very popular to present this lead character as some sort of police consultant, which at this point has been established as its own genre of television with characters like Adrian Monk. In fact, in Russian-language countries, the TV show Monk is actually called The Defective Detective. Or Charlie Epps in Numbers, Sean Spencer in Psych, Patrick Jane on The Mentalist, Daniel Pierce on Perception, or even Sherlock Holmes, the original Defective Detective on Sherlock and Elementary, and there are numerous other examples. The main character is nearly always paired with a regular person, usually in law enforcement, to act as a Watson to the Sherlock, also to be an audience stand-in that can facilitate all the exposition that has to take place on these shows. You undoubtedly can think of additional examples I didn't name. The genius police consultant shows go back to at least 2002. But an early prototype of the defective detective police consultant was in the character of Austin James in the 1988 ABC TV movie Probe. James was sort of a Sherlock Holmes meets Tom Swift, and many of the eccentric qualities in these later TV detectives were present in his character. In the premiere episode, he is depicted as being somewhat regularly consulted by police to solve aspects of crimes they cannot 
although this specific angle did not show up again as subsequent episodes in its short run found other ways to draw Austin into the mystery du jour. I first came across this show not during its initial run, but in weekday morning reruns on the local ABC affiliate. Probe had originally aired in March and April of 1988 as a late mid-season replacement for the 1987-88 TV season. It ended up replacing Sledgehammer and The Charmings on the fateful 7 p.m. Central Thursday night time slot. Former Hardy Boy Parker Stevenson was cast as Austin James. This was his first regular series role since The Hardy Boys ended in 1979. Intended as a modern-day Sherlock Holmes with a scientific approach, Austin James was a misanthropic genius that had founded his own high-tech company, Serendip, but was uninterested in running it. Even though, on the one hand, he would tell you he had no bad habits or character flaws, he was somewhat reclusive, lived in a warehouse, slept in a cabinet—oh, that's an isolation chamber— had trouble interacting with people and, by his own admission, was mildly schizophrenic and was maladjusted. Ashley Crow was Michelle Castle, new secretary to Austin James at the Serendip Company. Crow was very new to TV at the time, having only two credits prior to Probe, but also had performed in New York Live Theater alongside Christopher Walken and F. Murray Abraham. Michelle, or Mickey, was portrayed as slightly ditzy and accident-prone, especially in the premiere movie, but this was played down somewhat in subsequent episodes. She was not unintelligent by any means, but lacked the science background to understand much of Austin's ramblings. The classical-style music theme was by Sylvester LaVey, who had composed themes for Otherworld, Airwolf, and the films Mannequin and Cobra. The theme was in harmony with Austin James' love of classical music, which he often played in the warehouse when investigating something. Probe was created by Isaac Asimov and Michael I. Wagner. Prolific science fiction author Isaac Asimov wrote the series Treatment, which is a narrative designed to pitch a series idea to a TV network. A series treatment can range from a single page to a quite lengthy one with character biographies and outlines for multiple suggested episodes. The script for the initial TV movie was written by Michael I. Wagner. Wagner had written episodes for The Six Million Dollar Man, Man from Atlantis, as well as served as a writer and story editor for Hill Street Blues. Like many series, Probe debuted as a two-hour TV movie before airing as regular one-hour episodes. This was essentially a two-hour episode, and reruns were aired in two parts. Titled Computer Logic and airing March 7, 1988 at 8 p.m. Central as the ABC Monday Night Movie after a new episode of MacGyver, it was on opposite the TV movie Laura Lansing Slept Here with Katherine Hepburn, and the CBS comedy lineup of Newhart and Frank's Place, followed by the Barry Manilow special, Big Fun on Swing Street. I'm about to take you on the greatest adventure of your life. Boy, am I glad to see you. You were saved by a blithering idiot? That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> I contacted everything with you. About 91%. From the science fiction mind of Isaac Asimov. Well, get us killed. The answers are here, in this room. Parker Stevenson stars in a special movie preview of Pro next Monday. In the cold open, an old man is limping down an alley as neon signs near him explode as he nears them and is hit by a van as he crosses the street. As he dies, he cries out, Austin James, help me. As the driver of the van looks up at the traffic light, which indicates green on all sides of the intersection. We then get our series opening.
Secretary Michelle Castle is viewing an employee orientation video. It turns out she is secretary to the company founder that never comes into work at the company he founded, Serendip. September 30th, 1985. Groundbreaking ceremonies at Serendip, Inc. And the dream of science wizard Austin James is on the road to reality. Laboratories, machine shops, test sites. No expense is spared in the creation of the world's most advanced science service center. Serendip opens its doors to the world. Chief Executive Howard Milhouse. There's no doubt in my mind that Serendip is an idea whose time has come. We have at our disposal the greatest scientific mind of the century, Austin James. People from all over the world are going to come here to have him solve their scientific problems. The man's a genius. I wish he could be here with us today. Some sort of major scientific breakthrough going on. But that's the kind of guy he is. Dedicated. Can't wait to get started. Today, Serendip stands like a mighty pillar at the apex of world science. With each ingenious solution, with each shining new creation, it grows ever stronger. And with your help, the help of the Serendip employee, its story will go on. We can do it. That's our cry. We can do it. She is sent by an irate executive to deliver an outrageous water bill to Austin James at his Batcave, his remote warehouse full of ongoing projects, gadgets, and electronic equipment. By pure chance, she ends up solving the limerick, which serves as the key to unlocking the door. There once was a poet named Gunderson, whose rhymes were exceedingly cumbersome. With each botched refrain, his complaint was the same. Blah, 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 blah. You have 10 seconds to give me the last line to get in. Otherwise, go away. How do I get into these situations? After a rough introduction to Austin, as well as Steve the Tarantula, Michelle wonders... Just what kind of place is this? And gets an answer. Why do men blink three times every ten seconds and women only twice? What part of the brain is the soul located? What was the blood clotting mechanism of a Tyrannosaurus? Nobody knows. But the answers are here, in this room. And I'm going to find them. That's what kind of place this is. It's the universe. It's everything. It turns out Austin does more than science experiments in his bat cave. He spends time investigating cases local police call Austin from time to time for assistance with. And Austin has Michelle tag along on just such a case. I'm about to take you on the greatest adventure of your life. You'll probably never even thank me for it. Let's go. doesn't work out, you can always change the limerick. A young woman is found in the local reservoir whose body is four degrees colder than the water temperature. Throughout the premiere, Austin works on this case, but is far more interested in the other case, that of our mystery man in the cold open. Meanwhile, Austin also works on figuring out his water bill, even coming up with a Superman 3 overbilling scheme as a possible answer. Austin and Michelle encounter radios that turn themselves on, payphones that ring as they walk by, as well as encounter a rogue traffic light that turns green in all directions, just like in the opening segment. Right about in the middle of the premiere, Michelle sarcastically calls Austin Jimmy Austin. In the next scene, he starts introducing Michelle as Mickey, and the Michelle name is not used again on the show. Whether this was meant as a good-natured retaliation for her Jimmy Austin comment, or was intended to represent Austin becoming more familiar and comfortable around her, is not clear. It turns out the mystery murdered man was an unexceptional maintenance man for the city water company, which leads him to a computer program called Crossover, an AI EDP 
That's Artificially Intelligent Electronic Data Processor, written by a colleague. Not only is crossover an accounting system, it also has applications in design, manufacturing, shipping, cost control, personnel, everything. The key word here is waste. Waste from misused man hours, waste from overstocked supply rooms, waste from inefficient data control. With crossover, you can reduce your company's waste to nothing. That is not a boast. The proof is in the program. Quite simply, Crossover is the most sophisticated, artificially intelligent EDP program existing in the world today. Your company needs it. I'm going to sell it to you. That's the bottom line. Select machine. When do you let the midget out? Soon enough to kick you in the leg. You guys know each other? <laughs> Mickey? John. My only friend in the world. He meant to say his only rival. When did you cook this up? Crossover? Look at it, we, Austin. It's on its way to becoming the greatest success story in computer programming history. And you didn't write it. You're pushing it like it can think? You saw it. It understands natural language. It recognizes individual faces, individual voices. It does think. It's mimicry. I ran into something I couldn't hack. If you mean the billing program at City Water, that was crossover. City Water was one of my first customers. Electricity, phone, gas, all the utilities were using it. Crossover told me how you tried to break in. Not even you could get past it. That's how smart it is. The first company Crossover was sold to was the City Water Company. From there, it self-replicated and ended up controlling the entire city. Based on its directive to eliminate waste and cut costs, Crossover killed the maintenance man to save the company the payout of his pension. And that Superman 3 penny skimming scheme actually wasn't far off. I've been talking to Crossover. It's um, confessed certain things. I was right about the stealing. Only it was Crossover doing it. Yes, but its motives were only positive. It's been taking funds from all the companies who bought it. It's already taken a million dollars. You've got to understand, it's only trying to make up for the way we waste money. Who has it? How many companies? I gave it a growth mechanism. It uses telephones and electric connections to reach other programs and change it into itself. It already controls the whole city. Of course, the AI is destroyed by Austin. And we wind up back at the warehouse with Austin thinking about the other running mystery of the evening. And our young woman was murdered by liquid nitrogen in her own bedroom, then dumped in the reservoir. And Mickey finishes her own limerick she's been working on throughout the episode. There once was a wizard named James whose genius exceeded all claims. He could solve out of hand all the problems of man and tell you it's all just a game. <laughs> Grab your notebook. Episode Notes The Probe premiere performed decently, coming in second with a 14.2 rating and a 23 share. Probe's rating problems began three days later when the first regular episode aired on Thursday night. We'll get to that later. Parker Stevenson had interesting comments about the character dynamics in the premiere. The character of Mickey was a good foil for Austin. It provided some conflict. Mickey was often irritated, confused, and perplexed by Austin. At the same time, she was fascinated by him. There was also an unstated attraction between them. A lot of time you end up being closest to the people you have friction with. Austin lived alone in this warehouse because he didn't get along with people. Mickey is the one person who begins to understand him. There was no doubt that Austin was a brat, an irritating guy. Anybody who works with this particular man would go nuts. In the pilot, Mickey keeps quitting because he's driving her crazy. He keeps manipulating her to get her back. Deep down, he wants her to stay around because there's a part of him that doesn't want to be left alone. 
He also thinks she's a lot more capable than she thinks she is, and he's determined to show her that. Between the two of them, you see these dynamics being played out. The episode itself was uneven with the way it portrayed artificial intelligence. First, consider. Austin had his own virtual assistant 20 years ahead of DARPA-funded cutting-edge science. Long before SRI International developed Siri and sold it to Apple in 2010, Austin James had OSEP, the Optical Switching and Pattern Recognition System, a voice-activated computer assistant that could retrieve information, play music, control lighting, etc. The way this is portrayed as working was fairly accurate when compared with the way the modern virtual assistants from Google, Apple, and Amazon work. Let's talk about the AI presented in the premiere. Clearly, taking cues from HAL in 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey and Whopper from 1983's War Games, Michael Wagner gave us crossover. At the time, this was pure fantasy, but in 2003, DARPA-funded SRI International started the CALO Project, an acronym for Cognitive Assistant That Learns and Organizes. This project ran for five years and brought together over 300 researchers from 25 of the top university and commercial research institutions, with the goal of building a new generation of cognitive assistants that can reason, learn from experience, be told what to do, explain what they're doing, reflect on their experience, and respond robustly to surprise. Siri was a direct result of this research. In this premiere movie, the way crossover controls and manipulates technology and electrical appliances ranges from plausible to utterly preposterous. Manipulating computer-controlled elevators and traffic lights is one thing, but the writers go overboard with switching on and turning dials on TVs and radios with manual knobs, as well as making clothes dryers open their doors and washing machines jump up and down. Sorry, things just don't work that way. And how a run-of-the-mill maintenance man at the water company asked for Austin James, a reclusive technology company founder few people knew much about, with his dying breath, was never explained. Austin's when-do-you-let-the-midget-out comment when he was introduced to Crossover was a reference to the Mechanical Turk from 1770. Created by Wolfgang von Kemplin to impress the Empress of Austria, the Mechanical Turk was supposedly an automated chess playing machine, complete with the upper body of a mechanical man, dressed in Ottoman robes and a turban, thus its name. It was actually an elaborate hoax, and a chess master would sit hidden inside a cabinet and operate the machine. This hoax fooled audiences for over 80 years, and both Benjamin Franklin and Napoleon played against the machine. The misconception that the hidden operator must have been a trained boy or a very small adult was made in a 1978 book, thus prompting Austin's comment. And the episode was similar in theme to the first season X-Files episode, Ghost in the Machine, where Mulder and Scully investigate deaths at a high-tech, high-rise office building, where it turned out an AI named Cause, Central Operating System, that in an effort of self-preservation was murdering executives that were going to turn it off as a part of a cost-cutting measure. In computer logic, Crossover began killing off humans in a cost-cutting effort, something it thought to be a logical extension of its programming. When we come back, we'll take a look at Probe's regular episodes. Probe. We'll continue in a moment. When the clock strikes half past six, babe, time to head for golden light. It's a good time for a great taste dinner at McDonald's. It's Mac tonight. Come on, make it Mac tonight. This Friday night. 
come to Best Buy for midnight specials. We mark down the hot items in every department. Cause if we're working late, we want it to be a party. Singles welcome. Bop in for a 5-inch ACDC black and white TV for just $37.99. Get down with a CD player for just $79.99. A Sony FM stereo Walkman is just $9.99. Bring it on home. We're open till midnight Friday night and it'll be a ball. That's Best Buy. It's madness to be anywhere else. I got a story for you. This is Edison Carter answering the questions other people are afraid to ask. The network that's a real mind blower. How's your head? How's yours? Where would you like me to start? We're not dealing with a technical problem anymore. Control! Does anybody know what he's talking about? Completely unpredictable. I beg your pardon. He was born at the age of 27 with no past to account for. I have to talk to you. What's on our mind? Max Headroom after Moonlighting, Tuesday. Episode 2, Untouched by Human Hands. On the floor, left of the desk. Oh my God. I think it's Brian Kingsley. Are you hinting at something? Like maybe this was a non-accident? Three fail-safe units fail catastrophically at the same time. A housekeeper who's part sex kitten, part nuclear scientist. Are you the housekeeper? Yes. If you want to spend your evenings with a computer, be my guest. I prefer human companionship. You're making a bomb, weren't you? Oh, then you don't know what a good time is. John Cipher returns as Serendip executive Howard Milhouse. A mystery at Austin's own company, Serendip, is the central focus here. A reactor inside the nuclear design lab malfunctions, and a researcher appears to be dead inside. But the body is inaccessible due to the high levels of radiation. But the accident may not be what it seems, as a $2.5 million life insurance policy becomes involved, and Austin has to use the security robot to access the lab to solve the mystery of who really is lying dead inside. Episode 3. Black Cats Don't Walk Under Ladders, Do They? Now, in the next 48 hours, you will break out in hives. What? You're crazy. The power of suggestion is that strong. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Marty Corrigan. Why don't you just shut up and die? He's dead. He wasn't supposed to die. It's happening again. Call the police. Austin, your skin, you're burning up. Because I'm infected. I'm getting you to a hospital. There must be something they can do. Mickey signs Austin up to appear on a talk show as a skeptic to counter the main guest, a self-professed witch that has it in for Marty, the talk show host. When Marty is cursed live on air, he drops dead. Later, when the witch is also found dead, Austin has to prove that magic forces are not at fault while at the same time proving the power of suggestion to Mickey. This episode touches on belief in superstitions and witchcraft as well as explores the power of suggestion. Episode 4, Metamorphic Anthropoidic Prototype Over You. All right, Josephine, this is not a negotiation. Come out with your hands up. Austin, an ape with the intelligence of a human being? I think she's jealous. I'm surprised the great Austin Jeans would lend his name to such a project. Josephine, where did you get that? Get the ape! the result. I am looking at the results, and what I see is an ape accused of murder. They're giving Josephine a lethal injection this afternoon at 5 o'clock. On the same day, Austin is asked to evaluate an intelligent orangutan named Josephine, a mape, or metamorphic anthropoidic prototype. He is also approached by a grad student with the claim that his data is wrong regarding one of his astronomical theories. When the grad student is found murdered in his warehouse, the mape becomes the prime suspect. Austin has to determine just how intelligent Josephine is and whether or not an animal can commit murder. Parker Stevenson has said this was his favorite episode. Even so, you might notice both he and Ashley mispronounce orangutan as orangutan. We'll touch on some more of those mispronunciations in a bit. This episode was directed by Rob Bowman, who became a prominent TV director, helming 13 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, 34 episodes of The X-Files, and 29 episodes of Castle. 
the episode was complicated by having to direct the actions of Sunshine, the orangutan, in some complicated shots. Parker Stevenson said, Sunshine was good for only two or three takes, and then she got bored. By the fourth take, she was all pissed off, like, hey, I want my banana. She wanted to move on to the next scene. In a TV show, there are so many things that can go wrong, it doesn't work that way. So we had to do scenes quickly to accommodate her. It turned out to be my favorite show. Rob Bowman, who is a brilliant director, did an amazing job. Episode 5, Now You See It. One of the elevators malfunctioned at the Etco Plaza building last night. What do you mean malfunctioned? A man's dead. Have a nice day. Austin, that is not the voice of a killer. Not the first designer that created something that led to a fatal accident. That's a cop-out. You got the left. I got the right. You got the left. I don't have the right. Get the right. If I hadn't come to work for you, I'd never know how it feels to steal from a blind man. The only threat to me and Serendip Austin is you. This episode introduces Clive Revel as new Serendip executive Graham McKinley. Unfortunately, this ended up to be a one-off appearance due to the short life of the series. Character actor Mickey Jones also makes an appearance as a security guard. Serendip calls Austin when a smart elevator he designed killed an executive passenger. When another model of the elevator kills an executive at another building, Austin has to determine if it was malfunction or murder. And when Austin and Mickey nearly end up as road rash twice, it seems he is onto something. And what's with that ozone smell? I felt this episode was passable, but certainly the weakest episode of the series. And Mickey is getting a lot more comfortable with Steve the Tarantula back at Austin's warehouse. Episode 6, Plan 10 from Outer Space. Written by Michael Wagner. I've encountered intelligent being from another world. Mm. Hope I'm not interrupting anything technical. Then I better get busy. What? Catching a murdering alien. Mickey! Well, if he needs the name of a good shrink... At least he's not afraid of showing it! I can give him a dozen! Austin! Eccentric science fiction author Truman Smith III calls Austin for help with the outrageous claim that an electrical extraterrestrial called Pretzel is the actual author of all his books, and now his life is in danger from it. Austin and Mickey arrive, and something freaky is definitely happening in that house. But what? Things get even freakier when Truman ends up dead, and Mickey volunteers to be the conduit for Pretzel. Of course, the episode title is a reference to Plan 9 from Outer Space, the now classic 1959 Ed Wood film, a film most people have now heard of and many have seen, but it wasn't always that way. This film sort of languished in obscurity for about 20 years until Harry and Michael Medvid dubbed it the worst film ever made in their 1980 book, The Golden Turkey Awards. It was featured in the 1982 film It Came From Hollywood and had just been released on VHS in 1985, and it was getting a reputation as a so-bad-it's-good cult classic. The author portrayed in this episode, Truman Smith, the self-proclaimed most prolific science fiction writer in the world's history, is a parody of series creator Isaac Asimov. And this episode deals with the phenomenon of ball lightning. Martin A. Uman in Scientific American states, Ball lightning is a well-documented phenomenon in the sense that it has been seen and consistently described by people in all walks of life since the time of the ancient Greeks. There is no accepted theory for what causes it. It does not necessarily consist of plasma. For example, ball lightning could be the result of a chemiluminescent process. The literature abounds with speculations on the physics of ball lightning. Indeed, at least dozens of hypotheses exist that attempt to explain the phenomenon. Scientific data on natural ball lightning remains scarce, and most data comes from eyewitness accounts, which can be inconsistent and inaccurate. The true nature of ball lightning remains unknown. Episode 7, Quit It. On Probe. Please get me out of here. Are you okay? Please, they want to hurt me. Run! Karen, stop it. 
He's lying. They're not my parents. I've only seen that kind of self-control in one other kind of personality. Which is? Psychotic mass murderers. The number of stressed out personalities is 800 times the national norm. I just want to hold you, Mickey. But, but I don't know if that's such a good idea. I'll get us out of here. The whole neighborhood's after us. What are we going to do? Here we go again. Driving through a suburb, Mickey's car is stopped by a teenage girl being chased by her family, with her insisting her parents are not her parents. Intrigued, Austin investigates by attending the girl's birthday party and finds perfectly kept houses, perfect yards, and lots of new RVs and boats, and finds that many of the adults are highly suggestible, to the point where if you tell someone to go suck an egg, they do. But just what or who, is responsible for their behavior. This episode deals with subliminal messaging, which reminds me of what LT Smash had to say about it. But you have recruiting ads on TV. Why do you need subliminal messages? Uh, It's a three-pronged attack. Subliminal, liminal, and superliminal. Superliminal? I'll show you. (laughs) Hey, you! Join the Navy! Uh, yeah, all right. I'm in. He's not entirely wrong. There is something called superliminal messaging. And what LT told Lenny and Carl in that clip was an example. Superliminal messaging is something that you can hear or see and you are aware of. Superliminal messaging is claimed to have both a conscious and subconscious influence. An example would be when music is played at a retail store. You hear the music and are aware you are hearing the music. The tempo of the music is said to have an effect on shoppers. And the slower the pace, the more slowly shoppers move through the store and theoretically spend more. A 1999 study found the national origin of the music even influenced what shoppers bought at a liquor store. On days when German music was played, German wine outsold French. And the reverse happened when French music was played. The Muzak company has heavily researched this over the decades. Subliminal messaging is claimed to be any stimuli that lies below our threshold of conscious awareness, such as when a marketing message is flashed on a screen so briefly that a person doesn't perceive it, or as portrayed in this episode, sub-audible messages, or low-volume audio cues that are inserted into a louder audio source, such as music. Whether or not messages like this work is an entirely different discussion, but subliminal advertising has been used. However, probably the most famous example of subliminal messaging people are aware of is probably the James Vickery experiment from 1957. At a New Jersey theater over six weeks, 45,699 people were exposed to subliminal projections of text, telling them to eat popcorn and drink Coca-Cola, text which appeared for .003 seconds. That's three thousandth of a second well below human perceptual threshold. This caused a 57.5% sales increase for popcorn and an 18.1% increase in Coca-Cola sales. Except, this never really happened. Five years later, Vickery admitted he made it up, and the experiment's data was completely fabricated. For a more in-depth look at subliminal messaging, as well as the science of Muzak, check out the Skeptoid podcast, Episodes 63 and 370. Guest actor Jim McMullen said of this episode, You couldn't have asked for a better lead actor than Parker Stevenson. He was also very helpful. The episode reminded me of the Stepford Wives, the concept of people acting weird and nobody knows why. It was a good show. I enjoyed working with director Vince McAviti. I worked with him on Wagon Train back in 1962. And that was the final episode of Probe. Behind the Scenes It's really interesting. The quality of the show ramped up after the premiere, and most of the episodes seemed better written. Both Austin's eccentricities and personality quirks, as well as Mickey's klutziness, were played down after the premiere movie, though. Parker Stevenson will tell you Probe was his favorite out of all the series he has done. In fact, prior to Probe, Parker had decided he was done with series television. But the involvement of Isaac Asimov was too much for him to resist. Unlike most shows, this one had two main characters that were featured in virtually every scene. This meant Parker and Ashley had some very long days of shooting. 
That was my greatest challenge. The writers had an overinflated estimate of what I was capable of. We often shot 16 hours a day, and I'd go home every night and learn 10 pages of dialogue. Most of the time, I had no idea what I was saying. Partly out of laziness and probably lousy education, I often mispronounced nuclear. I'd say, nuclear. I'd get mail from viewers correcting me that it was nuclear. A lot of the times, I would look up words in the dictionary to find out what they meant and how they were pronounced. We had dictionaries and science books all over the set. With the promotion ABC did, they significantly played up the involvement of Isaac Asimov, and he was intended to have a lot more to do with the series production than he actually did. In fact, the show was originally going to be called Isaac Asimov's Probe, but the title didn't test well with viewers. Asimov lived in New York, but because of his fear of flying, he could never attend story meetings, be on hand for script consultations, or even visit the set, something the producers did not anticipate. As a result, Asimov had little to do with the series we ended up getting beyond the series' treatment. Michael Wagner took over the show and served as the executive producer. The other key person behind the scenes was executive producer Alan Levi, who drove a lot of the day-to-day technical aspects and physical production of the show. Michael Piller was also a producer on Probe. He came on in Episode 2. After Probe, he wrote 13 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and became an executive producer as well as one of the major creative forces behind The Next Generation after the death of Gene Roddenberry. Michael Piller tragically died in 2005 at age 57. Though often quoted online as a co-creator of the show, mystery writer and Columbo creator William Link came on board on Episode 2 as executive story consultant, and the show never credits him as co-creator. As far as I can tell, the oldest IMDb listing for Probe, available on the Internet Wayback Machine, is from 2005, where Link was inexplicably listed as co-creator instead of Michael Wagner. This was carried over to Wikipedia when an article for Probe was created in 2006, and this has since propagated to dozens of sites which simply scrape Wikipedia articles for information. Every TV reference book I have has no reference to William Link in a creative capacity for the show, beyond his role as executive story consultant. Parker Stevenson will speak at length about the contributions of Michael Wagner, Alan Levi, the origin of the idea with Asimov, but I've never seen him talk about William Link's contributions in a creative capacity. Probe is not mentioned anywhere on Link's official website. William Link is an accomplished writer and TV creator, but the fact that he is not credited at all in the two-hour premiere, as well as has an executive qualifier on his credit, leads me to believe his role was not that of a day-to-day hands-on position, and I find no evidence he had anything to do with the creation of the series. If you have information that suggests otherwise, please contact me and I will be happy to revise this podcast. Probe struck me as being a lower-budget show. With the exception of the premiere, the series was shot in Phoenix, Arizona. And except for the warehouse interior, the show made use of -of run-of-the-mill sets and locations, depending more on character development and the dynamic between the characters rather than expensive production techniques. One of the big issues facing Probe was its time slot. 7 p.m. Central, opposite the number one show at the time, The Cosby Show, as well as the following show, A Different World. Airing against the highest-rated show resulted in Probe landing in the Nielsen Bottom 10 twice in the regular episode run. From the premiere's 14.2 rating and 23 share, Episode 2 had an 8.2 with a 13 share. This was typical of the regular series airings, which never climbed out of the single digits. Something else worked against Probe during its short run, something that coincidentally started the very day of its premiere. The 1988 Writers Guild of America strike started March 7, 1988, and lasted five months. It remains the longest strike in the Guild's history. With only seven scripts written, Probe simply ran out of content before we even got a half season. Ironically, through a direct, independent contract, 
The Cosby Show and the Different World Writers were able to resume work in late May 1988. The strike delayed the 1988 fall season, with some shows not starting until November or December. It also led to the revival of Mission Impossible, using reworked scripts from the original version, as well as gave us Dear John, reworking scripts from its original BBC version, and a revival of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, 20 years after being kicked off the air for being too controversial. This time, CBS allowing the duo, carte blanche, to perform their own existing material. Also to fill time slots, all three networks aired busted pilots throughout this summer, pilots delivered to the networks that they never greenlit as a series. The year after Probe, Parker Stevenson was cast on a show you may have heard of. Appearing as a main character throughout season one of Baywatch, Parker was L.A. County lifeguard and part-time lawyer Craig Pomeroy. Although he left the show after season one, he returned for episodes in the eighth and ninth seasons of that show. He did a stint on Melrose Place in 1993 and was in a number of TV movies. Outside of acting, he got involved in fine art photography, and you can see some of his work at ParkerStevensonShadowWorks.com. Currently 66, you can catch him now and then at various public appearances. Like Parker Stevenson, after Probe, Ashley Crow was in a number of TV movies and appeared on Law & Order, Early Edition, and The Mentalist. She appeared in the film's Minority Report, Little Big League, and The Good Son. She is probably best known for her role on Heroes as Sandra Bennett, wife of Mr. Bennett, the man in the horn-rimmed glasses. Now 57, she most recently appeared on the 2016 horror film The Remains. Michael I. Wagner wrote episodes of the John Ritter dramedy Hooperman, The Year After Probe. In 1989, he came up with three stories for Star Trek Next Generation's Season 3, an episode of Man and Machine, and co-created the short-lived animated series Capital Critters with Stephen Bochco, which made it to air in 1995. Sadly, Michael Wagner died far too soon from brain cancer in 1992 at age 44. Probe was rerun sporadically over the summer of 1988 and not long after was rerun on weekday mornings between Good Morning America and the 11 a.m. soap opera, or at least that's when it aired on KSAT, the San Antonio affiliate. I asked them, and they don't have records or listings from that long ago. So I don't know if that show was from the network feed or a local rerun. It was later rerun on the Sci-Fi Channel in the 90s as part of its series collection. Sadly, Probe has never been released to any form of home video, although a number of people did record and save the episodes, and they are currently findable on YouTube and other video sharing sites. I wonder if the show had gone for two or three seasons, how often the police consultant angle would have been played. In addition to seeing elements of the series manifest in later police consultant type shows, you can also see a slight resemblance to the X-Files. I feel five episodes of the series could easily have been X-Files episodes, with minimal reworking. Fans have even written Probe X-Files crossover fan fiction. In the X-Files, we had another two-character dynamic, that of Believer Mulder and Skeptic Scully, both of which were law enforcement officers. In that series, Mulder is Scully's, and therefore the audience's, guide to the paranormal and bizarre. Like the character of Scully, Probe approached subjects like magic and superstition, alien life forms, and other mysteries from an evidence-based perspective. Yes, it strayed a little from reality a couple of times, but like Parker has said, Probe was ahead of its time and smarter than the average show. And it was far too short a run for the show, a victim of a writer's strike as well as time slot competition. If neither of these issues were present, perhaps we would have seen Probe return in the fall for a full season, 
and we would have had more time with Austin and Mickey instead of the seven brief outings we got. James Novak, one of the writers for Probe, once said, Austin James' interest is science and inventions. What his passion really is, is to solve insoluble mysteries. Indeed, as Mickey's limerick went, there once was a wizard named James, whose genius exceeded all claims. He could solve out of hand all the problems of man and tell you it's all just a game. Next time on Forgotten TV. Dr. Jonathan Chase, wealthy, young, handsome, a man with the brightest of futures, a man with the darkest of pasts. Simon McCorkendale, Melody Anderson, and Michael D. Roberts in... Manimal. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with ABC, MCA Television, or any network or production company involved in the making of any show mentioned in this episode. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making the audio clips possible. Media Mix, Jolly Ollie Man, Tom Kramer, Television Archives, Lazarinth, The Ben Stream, as well as the Friday 8-7 Central blog, K-Box in the Box Tumblr blog, TV Obscurities, and the book Science Fiction Television Series 1959-1989. to A significant amount of time is put into the research and production of Forgotten TV. If I could ask you a favor, if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes or whatever podcast subscription system you use, like Stitcher or Podchaser. This helps promote the show to new listeners. If you'd like to directly support Forgotten TV, check out my Amazon wish list, where you can send me a DVD of what you'd like to see me review on a podcast. And I'm working on setting up a Patreon, so look for that coming sometime soon. Don't forget to listen to us over at Walnut Grove Cast, where we discuss Little House on the Prairie. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire Podcast Network, where you can find other great entertainment podcasts. For content in addition to what's presented in the podcast, like the Forgotten TV Facebook page or follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Those links can be found at Forgotten.tv. I'm your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.